Give somebody a high five next to you and welcome to Influence. Good to see everybody here this morning. Excited to continue the series on um, uh, just uh, some kind of thoughts around my book, Woke Jesus. Also, I know Chrissy already mentioned this, but um, the, man, we had a great time on Wednesday night this last week. Who was here? We got a few people. With, okay, all right. There was quite. A, it was a good group. You guys enjoy yourselves. It was a good night. It was fun. I mean, it. it you know. We watched, we watched you know, an episode of the show, and then we just, you know, we just dove into topics. It was just a lot of Q&A, talking through these things, and, and I think that it was very, I mean, honestly, it was helpful for me to even formulate some stuff. Uh, sometimes I take notes when I'm talking because I'm hearing it through the Holy Spirit for the first time. I'm going, oh, that's good. I got to remember that. And, and I think that, you know, it's going to take, um, it's going to take people who are really equipped to navigate this new season of the world. You know, I think there was maybe a day where you could kind of like, you know, get by with a little bit of knowledge and a little sprinkle of Jesus here and there, but like, we're in a different age, and, and it, it's going to take people who are really, really equipped to navigate this, because it's so easy to go off into wrong directions in, in so many ways. I mean, look, I, I think even right now, there's people that they so badly want to fight against all of this... Um, uh, this this uprising of of you know uh, like licentiousness and you know we're in Pride Month and we got all the stuff that's all around us in your face from corporate America and everything else and and it can oftentimes push people into the the ditch on the other side which is legalism and again that's I'm not saying that any of that stuff is okay. But what I'm saying is that the way that we fight against or, or the reason why the gospel is true is not because the church is moral. The church is, is saved not because of our morality, but because of the grace of God. And anytime we begin to, you know, uh, um, you know uh, really wage war, so to speak, metaphorically against, the, and, and literally spiritually, you know, against these, these things that have set themselves up against God, we can't lose sight of the gospel in that process. Our goal is not a moral America. I thought that was going to go over about like that. <laughs> Our goal is not a moral America. I, I would love it if that's a byproduct. I would love it if that was a byproduct. And I believe that if there was truly, truly revival the way that we would like to see, that a, that a more moral America would be, would be possible. But we could have a moral America like, like, you know, comparatively and still a nation of people who are going to hell if they don't know Jesus Christ. And so we have to keep the focus on the gospel. Doesn't mean we don't have ways that we address these things. I believe that we have to, we have to move forward as believers like holistically. We have to fight this war on every single front. You know, it, it's, it's uh, I call this advance on all fronts. We do it relationally, spiritually, in our own personal life, our relationship with Jesus, through evangelism, through, through you know, uh, uh, politics when we're allowed to, uh, you know, as long as we're allowed to. We, we, we use every method that we have available to us to advance the cause. But they all, all of those methods, the mindset behind them has to be filtered through the gospel, has to be filtered through the person of Jesus. Because if any time you just focus one thing, you can get off so, so quickly. And I'll tell you, I want to be a church, I want to be a people here that we are not given to extremes, 
that we stand our ground, that we understand you know, what the fight is, and that at the heart of it is a fight for the souls of people in this nation. That's the issue. You could go, you know, you could go wave a magic wand, and if you turn, you know, everybody who was gay straight, that's still not a victory in the kingdom of God. Our goal is salvation. Our goal through the love of God calls us to be ambassadors, to go out and to minister to people. We're not just here to reject ideologies and leave it at that. There's a lot of people who are known for what they're against. We're going to make it known what we're for, and as a result, you will see what we're against. And there's times because when things rise up that you have to clearly say, this is wrong. We're doing that a little bit in this series today. But that can never be the main focus. Because if it is, we get off track. You understand? All right. Now that we got that all worked out, we're good. Okay. Um, you guys are a fun church to pastor, I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> Uh, everybody else, they're not here, they're missing out. Um, you know, it's awesome just to see this place grow. Christy and I are just so blessed by you guys and, and just what God's doing here. I, I really feel in so many ways that this is just the beginning. Uh, and we are, we're making, we're making um, you know, uh, God's downloaded some stuff, just some creative things that we're going to be doing uh, throughout this next year and, and, you know, throughout the rest of this year and into next, I think it's really going to just be incredible for this community. And we just want to reach more and more people. Uh, we're going to find ways to get as many people into this building as possible. And um, we're still believing to be able to acquire this building. If you're here, we're leasing it right now. Uh, and you can, that's something you can be in prayer about. We have a several-year lease, so we're good for now. But we need, to, we need to make plans because the Bible says the days are evil and time goes real fast. And we don't want to be caught in a position where, you know, we've, we've put this off. So this is going to be a major conversation heading into the fall about what it's going to take to, to really be able to secure this and everything else. And, and I'll tell you what, as you can see, I mean, if you've been around here for a little bit, you guys are multiplying and uh, you're growing and that's good. And we want, to, we want to make provision for everybody in this community. All right. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pray for us here, and we'll, let's, let's get into uh, teaching today. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. I pray that you would just illuminate your word to us today. And Lord, give us clarity. Help us to see error as for what it is. And Lord, redirect us back to you, Lord, and equip us to be able to help other people in our lives that have gotten sucked into false doctrine. Jesus, we, we just center our hearts on you right now. May this be about you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so um, we're talking through uh, some concepts from my new book, Woke Jesus. And I had one message in here that was going to be week one, and it's turned into like week three. And I think we're going to finish it today uh, on this particular part. But I think that these things are important. Uh, there is so much confusion in the church about the true gospel. And, and look, there are, there are some people that are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. They're, they're tremendous believers. They're faith-filled. They're, they're following the Lord. They're doing incredible things. But I think they've lost sight of certain aspects of the gospel or they, they don't have clarity on certain aspects of the gospel. And so although we look at them and we say we love them, we're for them, we can do ministry with them in some ways and, and side by side with them, uh, we, there might be some differences that we might have. 
that, that, but you know, we can love each other through that. And, and you know, this is part of, you know, we launched this American Pastor Project. If, you know, AmericanPastorProject.org, if you haven't seen that, you can check it out. But, you know, within that, we're, we're focused on basically uniting the church over primary doctrine and, and setting aside secondary issues for the time being, regulating those for private conversations and over a cup of coffee and, and these things. But that is not what makes or breaks our unity in the church. We're going to have some disagreements about certain things. Our church here, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are they're active today. You might have been here for five weeks ago. I didn't know that. Well, we do. And we're not going to hide from that because we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe that his power is available. We believe that his desire to save and set free and, and, and heal and all these things deliver is the same you know, as it was in the, in the New Testament as it is today. Church history is recorded. These events throughout you know, the last 2,000 years of church history. And so we're not going to you know, run away from that. But we know that some people don't believe in that. For me, although I believe that, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are primary in the sense that how could I go out there and be equipped to minister in the world without them? I recognize that somebody's view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit does not dictate their salvation or, or their, um, the unity that we have with them in Christ. And so we can minister and do often minister times. I mean, I've, I've preached in reformed churches this last year. I've, I've ministered to Catholic groups. I've ministered to Presbyterian groups. I've ministered to you know, Baptist groups. Every denomination you could think of, I've been in a church this last year preaching and alongside of them as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the differences of some of these secondary beliefs. But there are other things that are not, sec- they're not, it's not, it's not secondary beliefs. They're issues of primary importance. God is the creator, the nature of the created order, God's authority, the lordship of Jesus, the trinity, um, the, the, I, the belief in heaven and hell, the per- importance of repentance, understanding the depravity of man, salvation by grace through faith. If somebody comes to try to present a different concept on those things, now they might have a different view of, of you know, um, maybe some details about heaven and hell, that's okay. The scripture doesn't give us, you know, a, a, an exact blueprint to that. So there's room for some, some, you know, um, hypothesis and 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 you know, uh, uh, conjecture about these about these things. It's speculation, if you will. Uh, that that's okay. But we can't get to a point where we say we don't believe in heaven or we don't believe in hell. We can't say, you know, uh, um, you know, we can have some maybe thoughts about the nature of the Trinity, but we can't, we cannot you know, stand up here and proclaim that there is no Trinity and call that Christianity. That's an established Christian belief. But we have people today that have lost sight of these things. And I believe that, that we have to be more alert and vigilant than ever to make sure that we don't be led astray, okay? So let's jump into this. Uh, I left off, uh, just you know, briefly talked about the historical Jesus movement so what I'm looking at here, if you're just joining us this week, is really three ideologies that shaped wokeism in the church. We went through uh, this last two weeks a little bit more of the history that led us there. Uh, I'll mention briefly that there was a movement um, in the, which is really, I, I would say in, in many ways, it doesn't get any attention, um, hardly at all, except for in academic circles. Um, but I think it is one of the probably uh, movements that is most responsible for introducing wokeism into the modern church. 
And that is what is known as the historical Jesus movement. In the historical Jesus movement, again, I mentioned this uh, the last week, but just for a quick reference, it was basically a response, a counter-response to the Enlightenment at the, during the 1700s, and, and you could find some instances probably a little bit before there, where people were trying to make sense of the miraculous in the Bible, and they um, elevated Jesus' humanity over his divinity, and they basically looked at the miraculous accounts of the New Testament, and they disregarded them uh, because as people who were established in enlightenment and post-enlightenment thinking, they were too enlightened to believe that these fables, like somebody raising from the dead, could be true. Or that somebody could walk on water, or that somebody could multiply bread and fish and feed 5,000 people, or heal the sick, or cleanse a leper, cast out a demon. That, that, that stuff, that's for like the dark ages. That's for those ignorant people before us, before they had the scientific method. Those people hadn't read Kant and Hegel. You know, we're enlightened people, and we don't need any of that miraculous element. Now, here's the thing. That spirit, that was the first time in, church, in the church, history of the church that that developed. That spirit has shaped the modern church. And we have seen a distancing from the miraculous, and most people don't know that they've been influenced by a progressive movement that started in the 1700s, but they've been influenced by a progressive movement that has shaped the lack of the need of the miraculous for an elevation of a social gospel, of a, what I call a terrestrial Jesus. And so um, this is, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this today, but, but I want to just point out that this, the, the, this idea, these ideas, uh, it, shaped, it shaped virtually every single one, with few exceptions, of our modern, uh, well, first of all, of the first wave Bible colleges in America, Harvard's, Yale's, uh, even a place like University of Michigan was very pro-clergy when it first started, University of Notre Dame. I mean, we could go around and we could look at the, the, the leading you know, universities and, and, and uh, institutions in our nation. Most of them started as places to train clergy. And they, they quickly adopted this, this historical Jesus kind of framework and progressivism set in, and, and the vast majority of those have completely abandoned their theological roots. They don't even acknowledge anymore that, you know, if you go to Harvard, which I have done, and, and you go, you do take the historical uh, uh, tour, you know, you do the historical tour, they won't even mention Christianity, they won't even mention the history of the school that it was founded to raise up clergy. And that was the history of Harvard, and they don't tell you that on the historical tour of Harvard. Um, and so this, we've gotten away from this. Now we have our second wave Bible colleges, the Wheatons, the Biolas, the Azusa Pacifics, you know, these sort of places. And now we're starting to see the same ideology creep into them. And, and although there's some, still some great people at those, at those institutions, there is a movement in each of them that is pulling away from the foundations of the gospel, pushing people more into progressive ideology. And there's a need for like third wave places to rise up. You know, I really believe that we're going to see in the next few years probably a whole new launch of, of uh, Bible colleges that are going to form probably in more non-traditional settings, you know, to be able to really counter what's happening there. Uh, there's still some great ones out there, but uh, they're harder to find. Um, if you've got students or uh, uh, grandchildren or something like that uh, and you're looking for a place, please let us know. Um, the historical Jesus movement presented a Jesus who was a prophet, he was a good teacher, maybe a mystic, but he wasn't divine. 
And, and because, you know, it, 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 in this natural world that we live in, that just doesn't happen. And so there was an instance that Jesus resurrected, this is what some of them would say, Jesus rose from the dead by his message living on in our hearts. But he didn't really raise from the dead. Some would also believe that he wasn't actually crucified, that somebody else stood in his place and he died later as an old man. Uh, There's all sorts of different ideas. And all of these would come from sort of what was known as extra biblical work. Basically, they were just imagining these ideas of how do we best explain how this happened. And so they would take kind of the red letters of Jesus as his teaching, like Sermon on the Mount, but they would disregard these miraculous accounts. And so um, this, this shaped, this was actually one of the justifiers for Nazism in the Third Reich. Most of these um, historical Jesus theologians, if we even can call them that, uh, the, most, the most famous of which was a guy named Albert Schweitzer. He was, uh, wrote in the, uh, would have been right around the turn of the century in the 1900s, uh, from the 1800s and 1900s. Um, and, you know, tremendous guy, really interesting biography. He actually spent the last part of his life as a, as a uh, went back and got a medical degree, spent most of his, the rest of his life in Africa treating the sick. Uh, but he was an accomplished uh, theologian. He wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. He criticizes all of the previous people who went on this quest in a lot of different ways. And then he goes on his own quest and in the last paragraph of his book, and this isn't an exact quote, but you know, off the top of my head here, he basically says that, you know, that you know, he's getting to who is the real Jesus. You know, and it's essentially like, ultimately we can we might never know. He's a man without a face, a man without a name, you know, man, you know, it's just kind of this mysterious sort of thing, ambiguous, does not see him as divine. I mean, and just just complete like you think he's gonna like criticize these things and then turn the corner and go, here's the real Christ. And he never does that. And he leaves the world hanging, but his work was considered just tremendously academic scholarship. It was adopted by a lot of the Bible colleges at that time and seminaries, and it still shapes a lot of them today. And so this is, this is a movement of history that like most people have never even heard of. But I'll tell you, it shaped and transformed the church. Completely shaped and transformed the church. Um, and so I want to just be clear here. I'm not going to go through all these verses. Um, we just don't have time to do it today. But I want to look at a, just a list here I have in the notes of what scripture, the names for Jesus that scripture refers to him as, okay? And um, I was, uh, Bill, who's over here, he, he pointed out, we, we left one out on this list, and so it's uh, probably implied, but son of God did not make the list. It seems like that would be a good one. Scripture has a verse for that too. Um, and so this has been in your notes. So Almighty, Revelation 1.8. Alpha and Omega, Revelation 22. Author and perfecter of faith in Hebrews 12. Bread of life, John 6. Beloved son, Matthew 3. Bridegroom in Matthew 9. Cornerstone in Psalm 118. Creator in Colossians 1. Deliverer, 1 Thessalonians 1. Faithful and true in Revelation 19. Good shepherd in John 10. Great high priest, Hebrews 4. Head of the church, Ephesians 1. Holy Servant, Acts 4. I am, John 8. Emmanuel, Isaiah 7. Judge of the living and the dead, Acts 10. King of Kings, Revelation 17. Lamb of God, John 1. Light of the world, John 8. Lord of all, Philippians 2. 
Messiah, John 1. Mighty 1, Isaiah 60. Our hope, 1 Timothy 1. Our peace, Ephesians 2. Prophet, Mark 6. Redeemer, Job 19. Risen Lord, 1 Corinthians 15. The Rock, 1 Corinthians 10. Sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 4. Savior, Luke 2. Son of Man, Luke 19. Son of the Most High, Luke 1. Resurrection and life, John 11. The Door, John 10. The Way, John 14. The Word, John 1. The True Vine, John 15. Victorious One, Revelation 3. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. It's awesome. Look, there, there is, there is, you cannot, I mean, if you want to, if you want to disregard all of scripture, then you can, you can come to a conclusion that Jesus wasn't God. But unless you were going to disregard all of scripture, you know, even if you go, well, I don't know about this whole walking on water thing. Well, what about these other thousand verses? You have to get to the point to where basically in pride, you claim to know more than God. And literally, they're inventing ways to disregard this. This is, and the reason I bring this up, because again, most people have not heard of this. It's not something part of your you know, day that you're like, well, Lucas, I don't know any academics. I don't, this isn't a thing. When you see somebody on social media go, Jesus was trans-affirming, this is the modern-day version of what was inspired by the quest for the historical Jesus. It's, it's, it's where the quest has gone. And there's actually still a group, uh, I think they just, they might have just recently either, I think they were disbanded for a time, they might have just recently kind of gotten back together um, and called the, uh, the Jesus Society, I believe is the name. And these guys would get together, it's a bunch of academics, like leading academics in, in you know, various languages and, and uh, um, scriptural study and these things. But, but, you know, I mean, just no evidence of like a personal relationship with Jesus. And they would get together and they get in a room and they do these little retreats and they have colored beads. And they'll read through a passage and they'll say, do you believe this passage was, is this is this, should this be part of the canon? Did Jesus really do that or not? And like a black bead means he didn't, a red bead means he did, and you know they kind of put these beads in and they, they just vote. And what they did after that is they actually put together a New Testament, a gospel, or they, they put together a, uh, um, they, they, they put together a gospel, a single gospel, based upon all their voting of what was left in there of the only things that they knew were actually verifiable. And it's, you know, I mean, first of all, it's bad scholarship. Um, it's, it's wrong on a lot of different levels. It's ridiculous that, you know, a bunch of, you know, guys sitting around playing with marbles is going to come to the truth of scripture that's been, you know, here for 2,000 years, you know, um, for us and available. And you can't, I mean, like, turn, I mean, every one of these archaeology shows, Christy and I have one we watch on, on uh, um, Discovery Channel sometimes. It's like every single one, these are like unbelievers going to the Holy Land, going, let's search out the mysteries. And they always find that like, it's exactly where scripture said, it's exactly what happened. And they're like, now you might not be a believer or not, but there's something to think about. You know, and these guys aren't even Christians and they're finding these things and going, oh, this did happen just exactly like scripture says it did. Shocking, shocking. Uh, And so, you know, there's this, this spirit of unbelief that has prevailed but I want you to see that this, this, where it came from, it didn't just start up yesterday. 
It's not just because of, you know, the last administration or this administration or the administration before that. It's, it's happened because it's compounded over time. And there is some academic, if we can call it that, justification behind some of these things in the sense that it's been there for a long time, but it's, it's based upon just these empty ideas and really man's own fabrication of these things. So, so that is kind of the, this driving thing in the historical Jesus movement. Another reason I bring that up is because it's impossible to understand the next thing that I want to talk about, which is liberation theology and black liberation theology, if you don't understand the histor- historical Jesus movement. Because the historical Jesus movement set the groundwork for this thing called liberation theology to exist. Uh, because liberation theology is a focus on uh, basically uh, it's a view it's a view of seeing Jesus as Jesus's purpose was to come to liberate oppressed people and as Christians we can go that sounds good until what you understand is that they're not talking about spiritually oppressed people they're talking about oppressed people from based upon an earthly system and and specifically through the lens of Marxism And the only way that that works is based upon the justifications that they had being able to draw from the historical Jesus movement to already see Jesus as sort of a man of the people, this great social organizer, uh, this, this guy who just went about doing good and good works and these things, but he wasn't really God. And so we carry this spirit of Jesus by continuing this. And again, to, to the, an immature Christian, you go, well, it, isn't that what we're doing here? And they don't hear the differences. And, and it, can, it can, I think for some people, it can sound like nuance when there's actually this, you know, there, there's this canyon that exists you know, in, in uh, these beliefs. So, so let's talk a little bit about liberation theology. So you have, uh, and we talked about this the, the very first week, um, I believe, we had... Uh, uh, so Marx, we talked extensively about him last week. Marx was alive from 1818 to 1883. Karl Marx, um, and you know, really the the father of of um, of course what we call Marxism and modern communism, socialism is is of course traced back to him. Uh, we unpacked that a lot last week, hoping that was you know a lot clearer. We hear this term that something be called Marxist all the time. We don't really know what it means. So we talked last week about this idea of seizing the means of production and different things like that. If you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, and, and so liberation theology uh, started, there was a, a priest named uh, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez uh, in Latin America who grabbed a hold of Marx's ideas around about the 1950s. And again, Marx you know, died in the late 1800s. You had in the, right around 1900, you had Albert Schweitzer's work on the historical Jesus. And so this priest grabbed a hold of Albert Schweitzer and he grabbed a hold of Marx and it gave him kind of a roadmap for creating this new form of Christianity that was, became known as liberation theology. Liberation theology is very much alive and well. Uh, it shaped, uh, and, and, and it, it, we could say this, it was shaped out of the social gospel movement of the early 1900s. Uh, which was really kind of this early Marxist Christianity. But, but he gave, um, Gutierrez gave a more, um, uh, a stronger framework to it and really a structure that allowed it continue, to continue. And Gutierrez's work in liberation theology has gone on to shape black liberation theology and ultimately has shaped 
what we, you know, um, in the church world called the social justice movement. And I would say, uh, myself even, there was probably a time in the, we'll say the early 2000s, where I was reading about, so I was, I was obsessed with the social justice movement. It seemed like the thing. You know, we were seeing denominations that we knew and loved and trusted, that they were focused on this, they were writing articles about it, they were pushing this. And of course we're supposed to, you know, there, there's, the church should be involved in every aspect of society, right? We, we agree with that even today. And we need to get out there and if there's injustices in society, we need to go there and we need to do certain things. And that quickly went from kind of this benign hands and feet of Jesus movement to what we are seeing today that disregards sin, that calls evil good and good evil, you know, all in the name of justice. And so I wanna, I wanna build the framework for this a little bit for you. So um, liberation theology is basically a movement that attempts to interpret the scriptures through the lens of the plight of the poor, okay? So that's, that's the focus. We're gonna, every scripture is viewed through this lens of the plight of the poor. The people of Israel aren't really the people of Israel. It's synonymous or it's, a, uh, uh, it's an analogy for the plight of the poor. Uh, salvation, um, you know, powers, principalities, these things that we see, our fight, it's really, it's really those things, that's just, a, that's just an analogy for the fight against this oppressive class of you know, a bourgeoisie that's coming against the proletariat. And, and everything is viewed through that lens of the plight of the poor. And this is why, I mean, you see this, there is actually, there's actually a non-spiritual version of liberation theology. It's kind of become a religion in some way. We see this in this, like, you know, uh, um, class politics and everything else. And I think there's people that look at, at the radical left at times, and they're going, why do you do this? Why do you believe this? Why do you do these things? Why, why can you go to New York City now and get, go to a vending machine and get crack pipes out of it? Like, Why? Because there's a spiritual belief that's driving that. They view that as it is, it is a pious act to, to look at everything in life and focus on the plight of the poor, the plight of what they view as an oppressed class. This isn't just bad decision making. It's intentional decision making for a very specific reason, okay? And so this, we have to understand this if we're going to help tear down some of these beliefs on an individual level with people that you should minister to them. You know, to be able to ask them, why do you believe that way? What does scripture really have to say about that? If somebody's a believer, you can take them to the word. If they're not a believer, we got, to, you know, we got more work to do you know, there. But there's, there's, there is a lens that shapes all of this. Um, liberation, uh, uh, true followers of Jesus, according to liberation theology, must work towards a just society, bring about, je- about social and political change, and align themselves with the working class. Basically Marxism. Of course, the Bible teaches that we should care for the poor and speak against injustice, but what liberation theology gets wrong is that it places social action of equal or greater importance than the gospel itself. I want to give you a couple quotes here from our man Gutierrez. Charity is today a political charity. It means the transformation of a society structured to benefit a few who appropriate themselves the value of the work of others. This transformation, anytime you see this word transformation in, in context of social change, it's almost always a Marxist undertone. And so he's using, he's literally pulling from Marx, filtering, Marx was you know, cataclysmically against Christianity. But, but basically, Gutierrez is trying to salvage Marx. 
He's trying to say, look, he had some great stuff. He just wasn't a believer. Let's pull this into the church, filter it through scripture, and then we can utilize the benefits of his great system here through this lens of liberation, okay? Uh, through this lens of, of kind of the, the, the godly perspective of this. Um, and, and he says that, that we're going to transform a society structure to benefit a few to appropriate themselves to the value of work of others. So basically he says, there's a class out there that's taking advantage of others and that true charity, what does that mean? He's using the word charity as in when the Bible says love is patient, love is kind, another translation says charity is patient. He's using that word love and he's basically saying that true love is a radical transformation of a society to flip it upside down for the benefit of class. Okay, that's where he's going with this. And he says, this transformation ought to be directed toward a radical change in the foundation of society. That is the private ownership of the means of production. Right there, our Marxist language. This priest is offering, and again, I should say that our current priest, uh, or excuse me, our current pope um, is a liberation theologian. That is his focus. That is his background. Okay? And, and so, um, you know, this is, this is not something that was just regulated to the 1950s. This continues today, this framework. And so we shouldn't be shocked when we see it that it's driving these things. And I believe, you know, and you, you know again, I, I said last week you might come to this and go, hey, this feels more like a lecture than church. I'm sorry. We have some catching up to do. If we had all been studying our, you know, the way that maybe the church had 500 years ago before Netflix, then, then we'd all be caught up on this. But, and, and look, I, I had work to do on this as well. We have work to do to catch up in our understanding and our ability to communicate. Christianity exploded in Europe after, you know, after the rise in, in Rome and everything else because it, it really, um, they, they got, uh, among many reasons, but one of those I think is we saw a tremendous rise in Christianity, Christianity driving academics. And I think that we've seen that decline uh, as we kind of handed over academics to the state and the church let go of that. And I think that, Christian, I think that Christians got, we got very weak in that area. And I believe that, look, there's a time and a place for, to, to, to be spiritual and to, you know, to, to, to I mean, there, we, need every, we need evangelism, we need preaching, we need casting out devils. I mean, we need the whole thing. But we have to equip ourselves. And, and Ephesians 4 says that it's the role of the church to equip God's people for works of service. And so that's what we're doing here. We are equipping you because you're gonna reach people and be able to have conversations with people at coffee shops and at Thanksgiving dinner and all over the place that I can never have. And I want you to be equipped with at least enough tools that you can start pointing people to some things in this to be able to go forward. So th thank you, thank you. Um, and and uh, thank you. He says it's, it, it's this transformation, this radical transformation, he calls it, should be focused on uh, basically a reversing the private ownership of the means of production. Basically, he wants to take away personal property and give it over to the state to regulate it because the state will know how to do it justly because you, as an ignorant peasant, does not know uh, does not understand how to regulate your own means of production and your own goods and your own services in any way. This goes against personal stewardship. This goes against all the things that Jesus taught about personal responsibility. Socialism is antithetical to Christianity. It's antithetical to it. 
And, and uh, this is, it's very important to understand. So uh, he goes on here, next quote, he says, there are not two histories, one profane and one sacred. Basically saying, there's not, two, there's not two courses of life, one for those outside of Christ and one for the Christian. He says, uh, um, uh, uh, that, that are just juxtaposed or closely linked, rather there is only one human destiny. What is that? For Gutierrez, it was a Marxist utopia that God happened to be in. Okay, that was, that was where he was pushing. Um, he goes on here, or, or, so th- those are two from Gu- Gutierrez. I want to jump ahead, um, and obviously we could make this a whole history class and be here for a long time, but I want to get to what the word really says about these things, is I have a couple, this jumps from the Catholic Church, although it you know, continues and moved through the Catholic Church, but it, was in- it inspired a guy by the name of James Cone in America who experienced tremendous racism, um, and was trying to look for really a solution out of that. He was inspired by Gutierrez's work, as well as he regularly cites Marx in his writings, uh, as well as some other pretty radical thinkers. And his name's James Cone. Uh, he was actually a tenured professor at Adrian College, I believe, not too far from us. Uh, just passed away in the last, I think, 10 years or so. And um, he, uh, he built a framework for, in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, a framework for what became known as black liberation theology. In black liberation theology, not every single what we would call African-American church adopted this by any means, but a lot of churches adopted this, and it has gone on to influence a lot of churches, you know, uh, um, you know uh, just churches of, of any people group in the United States, because the teaching has become so prevalent, and I believe that in many ways it inspired what we call today critical race theory, that is sort of the secular version of black liberation theology, okay? So when you hear critical race theory, this is why I say that wokeism is a religion. Why is it a religion? See, people, you hear, you know, talking heads talk about this on television, and none of them ever talk about the religious side of it. Wokeism is a religion. Why? Because it's built upon all this framework that's all religious. And, and it is, and the fact is, if we actually acknowledged it as a society that was a religion, it would be okay. Why? Because the government would not be allowed to promote it one religion over another here in the United States. But right now what we have, because we don't call it a religion, is the government is promoting one religion over another. And so we're seeing that you know, really go forward. And so um, uh, uh, James Cone, just to give you an idea here, he says, suffering naturally gives rise to doubt. How can one believe in God in the face of such horrendous suffering as slavery, segregation, and the lynching tree? Under these circumstances, doubt is not a denial, but an integral part of faith. Keeps faith from being sure of itself. But doubt does not have the final word. The final word is faith giving rise to hope. Now, I mean, there's some way you hear this and you go, man, that, that, you know, like you could read this in a literature class and go, oh, that's poetic. But what's he really saying? He's saying that God wants you to doubt. Show me that verse. Show me that verse. Because what I read in scripture is that we should believe and not doubt. We should pray and not doubt. We should trust the Lord and not doubt. That there is no need for doubt. Not to say that doubt, you know, is, is you know, you're, you know, you're zapped with a lightning bolt if you ever have a doubt. God's big enough to handle your doubt, certainly. But doubt is never the goal of the believer. See, this, this quotes like this is what's given rise to the modern deconstructionist movement. 
And if you're not aware of this, I mean, this was something that was pushed very hard by the Christian music industry. A lot of Christian music artists have deconstructed their faith. Basically, they're going to move away from these traditionally held beliefs and move on to some other form of progressive Christianity. And, and it's all based upon this idea that doubt is a good thing and we should push into it. No, we don't push into doubt. We can recognize it. And we can say, thank you, Lord, that your word, you know, what is it? Faith is the substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, right? It's the evidence. Thank you, Lord, that I have evidence in your word right now in this situation that I can stand upon, that I can look to, that I can know. Bible says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Even when my own heart and flesh try to take me away from your word, Lord, I'm going to stand upon the word of God and believe and not doubt. This is the gospel. But we have people who have led people astray from this. I want you to see how this is connected. James Cohn goes on again. If the church is to remain faithful uh, to the Lord, it must make a a decisive break with the structures of this society uh, by la- again, that's a Marxist undertone by launching a vehement attack on the evils of racism in all forms. I- I'm for launching attacks against racism. I think that's that's great. But what you're hearing here is a, it's a systemic problem. It's a it's a it's a Marxist identity that there's oppressor and oppressed, and that there's a conspiracy where everybody's involved in this, and we have to only way to fix it is to overthrow the society. He goes on. It must become prophetic, demanding a radical change in the interlocking structures of this society. This is a call for the demolition of the world as we know it, okay? That is always the goal of Marxism because they believe that once you tear everything down, once you deconstruct not only your beliefs, you know, through doubt, but once you deconstruct society, that out from the ashes, the phoenix will arise and it will show itself strong and vibrant and alive. And you might go, what is he talking about? And that's exactly what I think when I read this stuff. What are they talking about? Because it's crazy, but yet this has consumed a large portion of our nation. They won't even know. People look, the average person on the street who you know, is, is you know, just spouting off Marxist ideals, if you said, hey, do you know anything about the historical Jesus movement or, or James Cone or, or Gutierrez, they would go, what are you talking about? They don't, they don't know this. But they have been trained on basically the coattails of this. And, and they, have, they have bought these ideas and they don't understand how far they've gotten away from the truth. James Cone says, for most evangelicals, revelation was found in the inerrant scriptures, and one need not look elsewhere. Yep. <laughs> he says, I knew in my gut that God's revelation was found among poor black people. This is liberation the- theology. It's black. So you see, he added, so, so Gutierrez would have said, I knew in my gut that God's revelation was found among poor people. James Cone compounded it and said, I knew in my gut that liberation was found in poor black people. Now, what does critical queer theory say? I knew in my gut that liberation was found among poor black queer people. And so it's just gonna keep going. The next group is gonna come out. I knew in my gut that liberation was found, or revelation was found among poor black queer people who think that they're animals. Like, where does this stop? And look, I, I believe, I, I'll say I, I've learned so much by ministering to people of all different walks of life. I've ministered, uh, I've ministered in, in Beverly Hills and I've ministered in the slums of Nairobi. And I tell you what, I've learned just as much in both places. But what I, the revelation of God comes from his word and through the Holy Spirit 
you know, just really uh, elucidating the message in our hearts. And so this is, the, to think that, that revelation from God only comes from a specific class or category of per- people, I mean, that in of itself, it's divisive, it's racist in and of itself. Basically, that you can't learn anything about God anywhere else or when you're talking to any other people group that only in this specific way, that this is the only way that you can learn. And, and again, the, 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 the criticism is like, if you disagree with Cone, then, well, you're a racist, and that's what a racist would say. And, and, and so you, you, I think a lot of people, they start backing down because they don't want to be called a racist, and they're afraid to talk about this, and so they, they don't know how to address it. It's not racist to say that the Bible is inerrant, and it's the place that we get our revelation about Jesus. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but I don't believe that one particular class or skin color is, because nowhere in scripture do I see God say, if you go to this specific group of people, they're the ones that are gonna show you this revelation. Okay, no, in fact, it would say that the gospel's for all people, right? Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. That, that anybody, that there's, you know, we're gonna look at a few passages here, but yeah. So, um, uh, one more. In order to be Christian theology, white theology must cease being white theology and become black theology by denying whiteness as an acceptable form of human existence. And affirming blackness as God's intention for humanity. And again, this is a tenured professor who was a tenured professor at a college not too far from us who, you know, he, he, he spent a good portion of his career teaching these ideas, bringing them to students in a Bible college setting and then sending them out to our nation's pulpits. And this is what was being promoted. And then we wonder why, you know, it's hard to find a church that teaches the gospel. And again, like, I, I don't even like doing this on a Sunday morning. If I could get everybody to show up like on a Wednesday night and make this happen, maybe we'd do this there because I would rather just be like preaching the word today. But we have to take a minute to talk about this. This is not gonna be every week. This is not what it's, I, I've said, this is not kind of the series. It's not even like how I like to go through things. I would much rather be teaching verse by verse through a passage of scripture. But if you don't know this, if you don't understand this, you're not going to be ready to deal with the world today. Um, My favorite quote, the black experience is the feeling one has when attacking the enemy of black humanity by throwing a Molotov cocktail into a white-owned building and watching it go up in flames. We know, of course, that getting rid of evil takes something more than burning down buildings, but one must start somewhere. So what does the Bible say about this? Let's take a look here at uh, um, Luke 2.10. Luke 2.10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will only be for the poor. Good news of great joy that will only be for the queer. Good news of great joy that will only be for those people of color. No, it says good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all the people. The gospel is colorblind. The gospel doesn't care what color your skin color is. Um, uh, the gospel is, is something that is available for all people, okay? Uh, next one here. Take a look at Acts uh, 10, 34 and 35. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter could have stood up there. I mean, this would have been a great opportunity if, if liberation theology would have been true and says, now I understand. God shows favoritism to the poor. 
And see, here's one of the things of liberation theology that I didn't even get to is that liberation theology, some liberation theologians, I should say it this way, they believe that because there's a special blessing on the poor, that we're actually wrong to bring them up out of that situation because we're causing, if they, if they become like us who aren't poor, then we're bringing them up out of their situation and they're going to lose that favor on their lives. And so we need to keep them poor. Okay. And, and this, is, this, is a, this is a prevalent idea. This shapes a lot of how medical treatment is done by liberation theologians at some of the hospitals and international locations and how they treat this. The conditions are terrible. They have the money to fix it, but the, they leave the conditions in terrible state because there's an there's a, uh, ideological belief that if they uplift this society too much, they're gonna take away that special favor that exists on their life, okay? God does not show favoritism. He accepts every, every nation. The person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Uh, Galatians 3.28, let's take a look at this. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. What unifies us? Our faith in Christ. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross, by putting our faith in him, that unifies us and irregardless of skin color, nationality, you know, any of these, you know, these descriptors that we use as human beings that are really just cultural inventions. You know, for the longest time, a black person meant somebody with black hair. Okay, so if I would have been alive five to 700 years ago, I would have been black. Now that would be very, I mean, I'm sure I'm gonna get canceled for that statement. But the reality is that we didn't even have a focus on skin color. Nobody cared about your skin color. That is a, that is a recent cultural focus. You know, to go, you talked about where people were from. You said they were, this person was a Kushite. That person was from Egypt. That person was from, you know, Israel. That person was from, you know, wherever. You didn't focus upon some sort of description of their skin color. We became obsessed with that. And it's been used to divide people. Um, they're, 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 why should skin color ever divide somebody? Who cares? I mean, I, I, you know, it, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Um, and that, again, this does not mean that there's not people who are terribly mistreated because of their skin color. You know, one group that's completely overlooked right now is the Asian population in America is facing tremendous racism. Random attacks, all sorts of stuff that have happened. There's been Asian churches, Korean churches vandalized these things. It, they, it gets very little attention. And look, there are people that, that you know, they experience um, tremendous racism. And that is wrong. We're against that. We stand opposed to that. We will do whatever we can to stop it, to unite with them, everything else. But this is not favoritism. Just because you go through suffering does not make you, more, you know, better than somebody else or more loved by God or favored by God in the situation. Okay, goes on. Uh, we got one more here. Uh, um, two more, sorry. John 15, 17. This is what I command you. Love one another. If the world hates you, understand that it hates you because of your skin color, your gender, your sexual preference. Nope, doesn't say that. It says, if the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. The world hates us as believers. They hate everything that God stands for because they hated him first. And the moment that I take on my persecution as being like something um, that it hates me because of my skin color, it hates me because of my sexuality, it hates me because of my gender, 
that what I'm doing as a Christian, if you're, if you're believing that stuff, you are robbing God of the glory that can be given to him of obedience in the face of persecution and suffering. See, because if God is, I mean, look, the only time that you can give that to the Lord is on this side of heaven. There will be no suffering or persecution in heaven. And so you cannot give him obedience in the face of suffering and persecution in heaven. You have one unique thing that you can give God now that you can't give him in heaven. And that is obedience in the face of suffering and persecution. And, the, and what, what you know, woke Christianity has done and has robbed God and the believer of the opportunity to do that because it's made that persecution and suffering about some sort of human marker as opposed to faith in Christ, as opposed to what Jesus did on the cross. And it robs from God. Uh, one more, I believe. First Peter 5.10, the, the, uh, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. What is this saying? It's saying that, it's what Paul iterates another place, that the suffering in this life is light, light, light and momentary. Look, the reality is, is that we all have a common shared experience called temporary suffering on this earth. Some go through more than others. But the reality is, compared to knowing Christ, it is all light and momentary. I hope that you never have to experience the suffering and the, uh, the trials and the tribulations that our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia are going through. I hope that God is able to spare us from that. But the reality is, is that regardless of what you go through, if it's, if it's 50 years in a communist prison, or if it's, you know, you lived a pretty good life and you had some ups and downs along the way, but you know what, God took care of you. Either way, the reality is, is that there will come a day in his eternal glory where he himself will restore, establish, strengthen, and support us after we have suffered a little while. And what that means is that we don't have to take vengeance in our own hands to overthrow society and overthrow civilization to get it our way. And let me just say this because there is, there is an error developing on the extreme right side that is trying to like, in a desire to, like I would use language like, I want to win back the nation for Christ. What I mean is, I want to see the gospel go out and capture people's hearts and have them come to know Jesus. What other people mean by that is, we have to storm the government and take it over for Jesus Christ. No, I'm not for that. I'm not for that. Now, you know, there, there's, I mean, our constitution promotes the idea that at certain times, if, if the government gets to a point to where it's no longer caring for the needs of the people, it's become corrupted, the constitution has certain things for that. That's not the biblical, you know, don't, that's not because I'm a Christian, that's because of what the, our, our civics in this nation calls for, and this is not me calling for revolution, I wanna make that very clear. Um, but, but as a believer, I am not, I'm not going on a holy war crusade to try to take over and create a theocracy. I want a world where, I want a nation where people are free. Because the reality is, is I can't create a utopia on planet earth that will ever be perfect and have all of our needs met, you know, on this side of heaven. The only one who can create and right the world and right the wrongs of the world is Jesus Christ. 
And so we await a savior to do that. In the meantime, we want to occupy until he comes. We want to make the gospel go forth. We want to make it known, but we never want to eradicate an individual's free will, remove their dignity of choice because God is a God of free will and he gives us the dignity to be able to choose him and respond to him. And the same way that people are forcing beliefs onto our children or you know, in various forms of society, I don't want to be people who are forcing our things onto people in society. We're inviting you to come. Yeah. We're inviting you. We'll use whatever airways and places, but they, people have the choice of whether or not they want to tune in. Okay? And so we, are, we, we want to operate differently than those who we are, are you know, standing in opposition to their ideas that they're bringing to the table. That is a very hard line for some people to navigate and balance, uh, and, but, but I think it's something that we have to, we have to watch for because the enemy would love for the pendulum just to swing to the other side and be just as, just as gnarly over here. And, and we have to learn how to be balanced and walk in the truth in a way that can help us truly overcome and live out these principles in our life. Amen? All right, I'm going to land the plane there today. And we'll, we'll jump back in. But I love you guys. And uh, I'm going to pray for us here today. And, and uh, look, I, I don't know everybody in the room. I look out. You know, we've got a lot of new people have come in here. And I don't know where everybody is. Uh, and I, I would be remiss to not give an opportunity today for you to be able to uh, have an opportunity to, to, to call upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So let's just pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God, there are so many false ideas that have been presented to us that stand outside of your word, Lord, and we want to just base our lives on your word, on your promises, Lord. We want to, we want to just, just, uh, um, just declare that our lives are governed by you. And so, Lord, just today, we, we, um, we thank you for your goodness. And Father, we just give the opportunity. If there's anybody here today that's never called upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today's the day. And just, you know, as we're sitting here praying, you could just raise your hand and say, I want to make that decision. We can have one of our team meet with you or pray with you afterwards. Um, I'm not here to embarrass anybody or, or you know, make you uh, uncomfortable, but we want to give you a chance to change your eternal destiny. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, I pray that you would just equip us with these truths. Just help us to be able to, to understand, to see, to be, to be Bereans, to be like the sons of Issachar who knew and understood the times and what to do in those moments. And Lord, I just thank you for this church, Lord, this home base for us, Lord, that's just been so incredible. Father, if there's, if there's needs today, Lord, may your Holy Spirit just go out and minister to them, heal the sick. Lord, may, may um, just bondage and brokenness just be uh, just just those, those chains just fall off of people. May doubt leave in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Courage and edify our hearts today. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. We're glad you're here. If you need prayer for anything, come up and see one of our team. We love you guys. We will see you soon. Thank you.